Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws of East Forest podcast. I am said East Forest. I might sound like an imposter, but I'm I'm the guy. I'm just sick. Well, I'm getting over it, but boy, <clears throat> I've got that awesome sick voice where you sound husky and deep. But let me tell you, this is a performer's worst nightmare. And thank God this has happened to me at a time where I don't have to perform because just a few minutes ago, I tried to fire up the old live rig and my um, my voice sounds like a frog and it's not the frog that I'm trying to play from a field recording. It just sounds like an East Forest croak. But I'm doing my best to power through. I'm a hell of a lot better than I was uh, several days ago where I had a, a bad fever. So now it's more just like you feel kind of run down and, and all that stuff. But it's all G, folks. It's all G. So I wanted to uh, get this podcast out to you regardless because it's a beautiful sunny day in the winter here. And I had this conversation with Mr. Cody Wiggs, which um, is someone I met at a gig in Denver. But first, I'm very excited because on the 25th of January of 2019, if you're listening to this in a timely fashion, is the Chapter 1 release of the Ramdas album. And I'm doing a live event here in Boise, Idaho that you can come to, of course, in person. It's only five bucks. It's a listening, gathering, party performance. But you can also stream in we're going to be streaming part of that event, some discussion and and so forth. And I think the that'll be around 6.30 or so, 7 p.m. Mountain Time on the 25th. Just tune into social medias and you'll see more information about, uh, you know, when that is. And, and that's how you'll be able to see it. Instagram, East Forest, and Facebook is whatever the hell it is. And... But more importantly, if you're on the email list, if you're not, get on it. Go to eastforest.org and get on it. But we sent out an email saying, hey, you know, this, this release is happening, the Ramdas release on the 25th. It's the first five songs of the record. It's chapter one. And we're asking folks in all over the world to host listening gatherings. What does that mean? It just means you gather with some friends. It really could be yourself if you want, but or you could open it up to the public. It's whatever you feel called to do, and we'll give you some material, the songs, obviously, some discussion questions, a little behind-the-scenes video, um, some other stuff, and you can use this however you see fit or not to have some kind of event where... The idea is we're, we're just gathering together and you can listen to the tracks and spur some discussion and connection. And then it'd be awesome if you share that online on social media so we can kind of find the others and, and hear your stories about what came up for you when you get to listen to this stuff. Because I, um, and by the way, if, you're in, if you want to do that, just email info at eastforest.org and we'll send you that info. So get on it, and you can, like I said, you can even just do it on yourself. It's sort of like a global meditation in a way. So join in January twenty fifth. Email east info at eastforest.org and we will help. We'll help you out. We'll hook you up. This is my brain on flu, folks. I'm sorry. It's I'm operating at about thirty thirty seven percent. Um, but what I was going to say is that the. <laughs> How I got sick, 
about a week ago, it was Rada's birthday party, and uh, she gathered a bunch of friends at a hot spring, and we were up practically all night, and I'm too old for that shit. It was awesome, but it destroyed me. But what one of the things we did at the gathering was um, we were all just like deep in it and chilling, and we were upstairs in this sort of yoga room, big space, and they had a nice sound system. And I put on the, the new Ramdas music, and I just hit play on it. We all kind of lay back, and it really took us on a journey. And it was a wonderful moment for me to, to encapsulate and kind of bookend the experience of the recording and play it for a, some friends in sort of a small public way and watch it wash over them and, wa- and feel it wash over myself in a new way and just get to experience it with freshness and feel the field of energy that it's creating. And I'm so eager to share that with you and see how that resonates with you and hear your stories and see how this germinates out into the world. So it, I'm just excited. It's just that time, even though I'm at 30, I just hit 38%. Even though I'm at 38%, uh, I, I can feel the love and grace coming out of this work from Mr. Maharaji and Ram Das and man, here it comes January twenty fifth. I also will be at the Ram Das retreat in the spring in Maui doing some stuff. So we added a few other live dates in the future in twenty nineteen. Uh, this science and non duality conference that's uh, down the road. Can't wait for all sorts of things. So always check that out uh, at eastforest.org.tour. If you're into bands in town or song kick, you'll see that stuff there too. But the email list is always the best way to just know what's what because all that other stuff is a bit wonky. And we try to target the emails to zip codes, you know, you know where you it's supposed to know where you live somehow. They know everything. And hopefully it it doesn't bother you too much. Uh I had just want to read this really sweet thing I saw online and it was about the podcast and I love it when folks are letting me know that this podcast is valuable to them and that they're sharing it with others because that's just helping build this new story. So I had here uh, Al Caludo. I think that's I. I love these these names because they're not names. Al Caludo on Instagram just posted about the podcast and said, today is about sharing because sharing is caring and I personally care deeply about this stunning world we live on. Musician, artist, beautiful human yogi. Am I a yogi? I'm kind of a yogi. East Forest has created, in my personal opinion, a fantastic piece of work with this podcast. Interesting conversations, important discussions, deep reflections, mind-blowing shared stories, and more importantly, outstanding music. His voice, the expression, tone, and color is just the gift of this world. I highly recommend checking him out. I cannot even tell how much this podcast is helping me while facing a very challenging time. Well, thank you. Alcaludo, I'm so happy that it's helping you. It helps me too. And you're helping me. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you for spreading the word out there about what we're doing in these conversations and the meditations. I hope hope you enjoyed that last one. Um, that was actually for a podcast that I recorded. I mean, you know, someone else's podcast where we were talking about the Ramdas thing and it, uh, it's called Catching Z's. And that should be out soon, later this month. But they wanted me to do a meditation in it. So I thought, well, I'm going to share that with you too. Because that's how we roll. Sharing is caring. 
Okie dokie, folky dokies. Uh, Cody Wiggs. Cody Wiggs I met in Denver when I was playing a ceremony concert there a bit back. And we got the chatting and he does ketamine-assisted therapy. And that's something that's pretty hot right now. Got a lot of cutting-edge stuff. And uh, the therapy he does and the work with that is above board and legal. And I had a lot of questions. So I was like, hey, let's, let's get you on the podcast. I think his girlfriend suggested you should have him on the podcast. And I was like, you are right. That is an excellent idea. So we got him on, and I got to ask all the questions I wanted to know. And I hope this is informative for you, too. If you've wondered about what that therapy is and what kind of promise it might hold and what are some pitfalls and just what's going on out there. So that's that's what we're going to get into here. And other than that, um, I'm probably forgetting some things, but I'm, I'm only at 30. I'm at 30. Okay, I hit 40%. I'm at 40%, folks. But this is, you know, still want to c- connect you. And I can't wait to see you on January 25th for East Forest Ram Dass Chapter 1. Some new music from me. It's it's music that I'm very excited about. And I'll give you lots more content talking about the songs and behind the scenes as the year goes on and soon, really. But more than anything, the main event is the music itself. So I just can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, get on your, your favorite music platforms and host a listening party. Tell your friends. Let's do this together. It's way, way, way more fun. Okay, enjoy this conversation. This is Cody Wiggs. All right, Mr. Wiggs, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Where are you? I'm in Golden, Colorado right now. Golden? Yeah, just outside of Denver. North? It's just west of Denver on your way to the mountains. Ah, so you probably have a lot of snow. Yeah, well, there's a dusting on the ground. It's been cold, but I'm ready for the light to start coming back soon. Well, you're going to have to wait. Wait I know. Wait a few weeks. (laughs) So um, you and I met at the East Forest Ceremony event I did in Denver recently. Yes. And we were chatting afterwards, and was it your your partner, girlfriend, friend? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Girlfriend. Yeah. What's her name? Her name's Kate. Kate. So Kate mentioned that you do, or maybe we were talking about ketamine therapy or something like mm-hmm. that and that you do that sort of work and of course that perked up my ears that's actually something that's i've been hearing more about uh for the past couple of years but i'd say in the last six months there's a guy who was on my podcast earlier named don latin okay who, he wrote a book that was similar to michael pollan's recent book mm-hmm. matter of fact it had the same title pretty much but nice Michael Pollan's Michael Pollan and right. the books came out like around the same time. So it's kind of a rough, a rough go there for, for Don, but he, oh, he did all this wonderful research and he was uh, telling me a lot about the ketamine therapy. And I think he's, he experienced, he uses it himself. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm seeing it pop up more and more and I've heard about it. And uh, just initially I wanted to just hear more about the work that you do. Cause I'm assuming I looked at your website. This is all above board, and this is something totally, that's yeah. legal. 
and helping people. So what I know about it is that's a little bit like uh, used for depression a lot for treatment mm-hmm. resistant mm-hmm. depression is what I've heard, or at least that's how you usually get to that place. But what are you using it for? And give me a little background on, on what you're up to. Sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of rabbit holes we can go down and in, in just I'm what sure. you just said. But um, so I'm a therapist here in Denver and I'm using it. As you said, like ketamine is primarily, um, you know, kind of being touted right now for treatment resistant depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason being that it tends to really work. I mean, for most people, there's like a 70 percent remission rate after one treatment. Um, and that tends to bump up, you know, with a different combination of factors, but it's, it's interesting that people who are coming to me, so I'm using it in a therapeutic context, um, where essentially, you know, I partner with a psychiatric, psychiatric nurse practitioner, and then he prescribes the meds. My clients bring the meds to session, um, and they take it in a lozenge form. Yeah. That's what Don did too. And I think yeah, he like does it himself and lodges form like as a sort of a a maintenance or something. I do that as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm probably overdue at this point. It's been a little while, but the, uh, the lozenge is really nice because it kind of takes its time coming on and wearing off. Whereas, you know, the, the other way ketamine is being used or other ways is through, um, intramuscular injections and IV infusions an IV or a shot. Yeah. And those are, I mean, those take you straight to it. It's like two minutes and you're off, um, versus kind of like easing your way in. And for me, I've, I've tried, I haven't tried the infusions yet, but I've done the, the intramuscular injections in a Mm -hmm. therapeutic context. Um, and I've done the lozenges and they're, they're two pretty radically different experiences. Cause one's stronger. Yeah. The IM is the depth of the ketamine experience. Yep. Yeah. The IM just took me right out of my body and somewhere else. I have only a little bit of experience with ketamine in mm-hmm. my life recreationally. I was at Burning Man like 10, 10 to 11 years ago, 2007. And I was just sitting around and someone, they were, they was like their favorite thing. You know, it's been a recreational mm-hmm. experience for a long time. And they were like, put it into a, like a, a Flonase type thing where you just like oh, one little yeah. squirt would get them one, whatever they considered a dose. Right. And I was curious about it. I'm always sort of like, I knew about it, but I'd never really sought it out. And um, I I had one, but later on, I was like, this doesn't feel right because my whole face was numb <laughs> and stuff. And they're like, oh, it's cocaine. And I'm like, I didn't oh, want shit. I, I've never done cocaine. I like, I have no interest in cocaine. So yeah, um, I didn't really have uh, any personal firsthand, but I know from what I've read, it was used as a... Uh, analgesic i think for kids and horses or something back in the yeah, day or actually, maybe still it is it started in the vietnam war um as a really safe battlefield anesthetic mm, fast so acting just kind of yeah and it doesn't affect heart rate or respiration really? um so and there's there's really too no much and, and die from breathing their lungs. exactly yeah um, so anybody who's like a, a you know you could just shoot your buddy up with ketamine in the field and trust that he's not going to die from an overdose, um, which is also why it's awesome in therapy because it's so safe compared to any other anesthetic. Uh, but I've never used it recreationally either, so I'm that kind of blows my mind because I've I from the way I've experienced it in a therapeutic context, I can't imagine being at a festival or a party on ketamine because I just get way out there. 
Well, um, let me ask you this. Uh, let's talk about the psychological safety. Uh, sure. You know, because I've what I've heard about is the famed K-hole, which is this right. idea that like maybe at first the lighter effects of ketamine, maybe you can tell me, are more a slightly disassociative, almost like mm-hmm. you're in a movie. I've heard it described like, but at the higher doses, it's sort of out of body. And many people describe that experience as somewhat unpleasant. I mean, some people like yeah. that, but yeah, they're yeah. like it's. Uh, sort of neutrally emotional or there's so there's a sense of um maybe um, anxiety about this out of body type experience uh what have you found as far as the safety as people's experience with their emotions yeah i mean the baseline safety with any psychedelics as you probably know is like if you have a history of psychosis um or any of that you don't want to take it uh, and there's a few other contraindications for ketamine but they're pretty rare you know like severe cases of bipolar or something like that Um, but ketamine just has an incredibly high safety profile, um, especially at the doses we're using in treatment. Like we're not using K-hole doses in a therapeutic setting. What are the doses you're using and how do you determine that for people with different tolerances? Yeah. I mean, the, that's a great question because everybody responds differently. Uh, even, you know, like I have some patients who are really lightweight, who seem to just be fast metabolizers, um, and have a really high tolerance. So the typical dose we're using in a lozenge form, which is going to be different than IM or IV, is 150 to 200 milligrams um, and just dissolved under the tongue. And it tends to be enough. um, You know, I don't know that I've ever officially hit the K-hole. I can't say for sure. I know with the IM, I was probably close. Um, but, But like you said, it's... I think there's a difference between taking it on your own or at a party or in a setting where you're, you know, you're not doing it intentionally and you're not doing it with a supportive therapist um, versus like, Hey, I'm going in to explore my trust. So as far as safety goes, I've never, none of my clients have ever had a quote unquote bad trip. Um, It tends to just feel like really warm and fuzzy and, and very safe. And, I would assume your experience, is it similar into how people are doing MDMA therapy or other? I mean, it's, first off, ketamine is not technically a psychedelic, right? Yeah, it's not a classic psychedelic and, and same, same as MDMA, but ketamine right. is just in a, its own class as far right. as I can tell. And so you're, you're, you're doing a form of ritual and guided psychotherapy during the experience? Totally, yeah. And that's where... Um, that's what actually made me kind of want to come up and talk to you after your sound ceremony was your, you know, you were talking about like, Oh, it's really how we use our attention uh, that makes something ceremonial or makes something sacred. Yeah. And it's the same thing with a ketamine experience. Like you, you could easily just take it and have an experience and not build in the ceremony. Um, but at least the way I work with clients is I do a three hour session And the first half hour is, um, you know, just intention setting and calling in the directions and like building in some ceremonial elements that you would see in more indigenous ceremonies anywhere in the world. Um, And I just kind of explain that to my clients as like setting the stage for the unconscious mind. Totally. Um, And just, you know, giving your attention some room to roam and, and giving a building in a sense of psychological safety, but also like marking that transition from the ordinary to the extraordinary. I love that. 
And that's a lot of like what ritual does is it just helps mm -hmm. us. The ritual itself is, is sort of helping those markers, as you said, for our unconscious. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And that's sort of what that alchemy is with our brains and and spirit perhaps is the same way. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there 100%. And it's, you know, it's fascinating to me how much that can impact someone's experience. Um, oh, you know, set, just set and setting, right? The mindset yep. that they're in. Yep. <clears throat> and so mm -hmm. that I build that in. Um, and then the other big piece of why I, I came and said hi is because I use your music. Um, uh -huh. And so it does look a lot like that the MDMA sessions that like they're doing in the maps trials where my clients will have eye shades on. I've got some music going in the background and the ketamine experience itself is about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, and you know, everybody's experience is vastly different, but for many it's, it kind of takes the whole verbal processing part of the brain offline, which I think is one of the benefits. And then there's some more like creative unconscious parts that can work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to so talk about each of those directions yeah. because, sure. yeah. But tell me more about the experience itself. So the music's playing on speakers, not headphones. Yes. Yeah. And I haven't tried headphones yet. Um, I think that would provide a much more introspective experience, but I like being able to interact at least a little bit, um, yeah. you know, cause they'll find some clients will get lost or get scared or need support. Yeah. Uh, and so if I can just kind of cue them very gently uh, you know, back towards the music as an object of attention or their breath or their body. Uh -huh. It tends to support their experience. So it's, they have a, you know, an experience, whatever it is. Like I said, it's different for everyone. I'm working and, on a record um, for after the Ram Dass record. Actually, it's in, in between it in 2019. It's called Music for Mushrooms uh, Soundtrack for the Psychedelic Practitioner. And yeah. it's five hours long. I'm excited about that one. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, I'm sure I, I don't, you know, have experience yeah. with ketamine, but I would imagine it would work very well for that. But it, it's designed mm -hmm. as a tool, a musical tool that you can just hit play and it's a connected arc experience. I mean, it's designed for the psilocybin uh, guided experience in the same setting as you're discussing, a ritualistic um, connected guided experience. But yeah. I would I would imagine it would work for a lot of the classic psychedelics to help take you into that inner space in a in a safe way. I, and I, I I'm interested in the, in the, in the same things you are, but my tools are more like how can music be that guide and actually help that process with the mm -hmm. brain and with the heart and with the mind. Well, let's I mean let's go down that rabbit hole if you want. We can come back to the the experience or we can put a bow on it. But the the music to me is such an important element. And, um, you know, there's something ketamine in particular, but any psychedelic, you know, mushrooms, like music is going to sound different. Um, and the types of music you use and how you use it. And, it, it, you know, I had a friend who also does ketamine assisted therapy and he wasn't using music. And so I did a session for him and, immediately afterwards he's like why wasn't i using music that was that's what i would say it's like yeah, you're missing it, like this it, huge it, opportunity yeah and it I, you know i'm curious to hear your thoughts on it too because i'm you know i haven't studied in depth like how does music work with the brain but i know from having been in that ketamine space um you know i, I typically haven't connected with classic music 
It's and the when worst I, it, thing you could play, classical music, and that's <laughs> mostly what they play in these studies. They're it totally is, missing the boat. I'll say, you know, I hearing it on ketamine. It's not the worst thing for me. I mean, I'm. I'm <laughs> it was, but it was totally different. You know, like that. It wasn't like any classical music I'd ever heard. I was like, one of the things about ketamine at a high enough dose is you kind of cease to exist as an independent self. Um, which probably is the K-hole. I think uh, that's sort of what people are describing, the ego death, yeah. the dissolution of self. And so in that, you know, when I hit that state with ketamine and the classical music going, I was just in the music. Um, and well, that Let me just push wild. to that a bit. I mean, yeah. yes, you're in the music and it's wonderful. And I think it's good. Right. But there's some things about classical music that other forms of music, I'm biased, particularly mm-hmm. the music I'm making, are intentionally better. And I can explain why yeah, in a musical do. sense. I'd because love to hear it. classical music traditionally, uh, the syncopation in it is very square. It's a lot of like da 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 or like da da. It's very, you know, it's got a, a formality to that sense, which mm. sort of is typical. Not in all, I mean, there's different kinds, but in a lot of it. Yes, there's a softness, there's a balance, and there's an, a there's a beauty to it. But mm-hmm. one of the things that's challenging with music is everyone has their own personal taste and their own cultural background with it. So the music that I'm trying to make, I want it to speak to the Western ear and to the the ear of modernity, to a contemporary mm-hmm. ear. It's like, what did we grow up with? So yeah. when you hear the music, it's going to resonate with you and your body and your musical history the most. Because mm-hmm. that's the same place I grew up in that I'm coming from. Now, if yeah. we did something in, say, India or uh, in China... They have a different musical cultural background. I'm not sure if it would have the same. Um, it might have a universal effect because music is somewhat universal in its ratios and so forth and harmonies. But, you know, they have a different cultural uh, background. But like India, maybe it's more micro tonality, perhaps, you know, it depends. Mm-hmm. So anyway, classical music is also very old, a lot of it. Yeah. So it's yeah. not like that's better because it's for any reason or like you could argue jazz might be more interesting if you pick the right jazz, right? I would argue just jazz compared to classical might be more interesting. Now, it has to be the right music, obviously. And the same with classical. Mm-hmm. You could you could put on some crazy Stravinsky or some modern stuff, and it would just be like, whoa, what is this is pushing me away, away. versus mm-hmm. some Bach mm-hmm. or Debussy, which might be pulling you into yourself, which I think is the idea. It's like, what makes you feel safe? What has that emotional content that's helping like stir up uh, sort of the unconscious and, and, and help that process. So, you know, I, I want to bring in music that, uh, is evocative in that sense, but, you know, I've spent 10 years actually like testing and devising the music yeah. in that setting. The classical music was not designed for that setting. Yeah, it was I, written for like kings. It was written for like concert halls. It was written for like you know there was yeah. musical criticism. It's like, well, what happens if it's literally, literally being improvised in that space? Meaning it's being inspired from that place, created live in that space, which is also something every indigenous ceremony in the past. They, the music, it's live music, is live. Yeah. They're sitting there with a rattle. Yep. They're singing, and there was a reason yep. why. I mean, yeah, they they also couldn't. They didn't have recorded music, but. There's something powerful about that call and response, that, that responding to the moment. Um, beyond the fact of what we know about sound healing these days, you know, simple mm-hmm. things of like a rattle or a, a, a drum beat uh, entraining the brain 
the, the use of repetition, the use of tension and release, uh, different tunings you can use, different, it's all about overtones as, as a way of activating uh, some of these more emotional responses in our body. So non-melodic instruments are going to have some of the most of that, like bowls and gongs and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and cymbals. And, and, but everything has it. And so there's all these different things you can use intentionally to make the music a more powerful tool in that setting. Whereas classical music never intended for that. It may, it may you know, coincidentally have some of those benefits. But I always felt that when I listened to the John Hopkins psilocybin playlist on spotify yeah, it doesn't connect i was like besides the fact of my taste being like i don't like some of this i was like i just feel like we're you guys are scratching the surface mm-hmm. of like you said it's almost like your friend wasn't using the music and you're like we'll try right. it and i'm saying you guys right. are using music but what if you tried it like this right and then they might be like oh wow we just bumped up seven percentage points in people's like in their data about the power of the experience i mean my opinion and that's just yeah. anecdotally yeah, yeah. what i see well, I think, I mean, it's interesting because your expertise is sound and music, um, you know, and mine is like therapy. In particular, I'm a trauma therapist. So one of the things I keyed into on what you said is this idea of creating a sense of safety. Um, you know, and for me as a therapist, like my number one goal in any session is a sense of safety. Because um, it's, you know, if you just think about the neurobiological mechanism of trauma, it's not going to get released. Like you're not going to return from a freeze response or a fight or flight response until you feel safe. Uh, And so in order to bring someone back to baseline and then go deeper into, you know, like where did the trauma come from? Or, and actually that's a less important question than like, how do we get it out of the body? Uh, And so in order to do that, they have to feel safe. Uh, And it's, it's super interesting hearing you describe this because I've tried to connect with classical music in the psychedelic space and it's been really difficult for me. Um, and I've never really understood why they're using it in the MAPS trials. Because I don't it, either. It's, it yeah. seems to be like a default, oh, you're supposed to use like classical, some special music. It's like they're it, yeah. probably like Indian ragas where they're like deep in the feeling of it would probably be better. Yeah. Because and it has a, that emotional core. It's almost like, you know, hearing you describe classical, it almost seems like it would frame the mind more towards a linear progression, you know, because it is kind of like, so like that, 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 uh, and the psychedelic state is like inherently nonlinear and the more nonlinear, the better in terms of just opening your vistas and, and creating new paradigms and creative thought, um, you know, but it, it, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I feel like I could just keep there's Digging more to this, this, Cody, because like yeah. also, you know, in the psychedelic space, you're basically with music creating a sonic architecture that they're in. They're like in a room, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially with their eyes closed. That to me should be a while, like 15 to 30 minutes. A lot of these oh, songs, just, they're not that long. Yep. You know, right. there's that too. It's like, it's not, it's a different kind of brain. It, it should be slow. It should be evocative. It should be like, like as if it's almost like, you know, something slowly taking shape and creating a space for them to be in. And it's not defining where they're going to go, but it's it's kind of holding them in a feeling. Each mm-hmm. song is sort of creating a certain feeling. And some of that's artistic and, t- and intuitive, at least on my part. But you can also, there's tools you can use that you're saying, if this was for the psychedelic experience, what would be the best, say, chord progression to use in this moment? Mm-hmm. Or the best, the most, in- I don't want to use instrumentation that's going to be too 
grading or take them out of it? Or do I want to take them out of it for a moment? You know, we want to push, create some tension and some build. Yes. Yeah. And then it goes away and there's the release. Another thing that I'm doing, as you experienced in the ceremony, is the field recordings. Mm-hmm. There's all this nature stuff. It's very helpful and soothing usually and creates a mm-hmm. sense of safety to bring us back. So when you're inside a clinical setting, especially, I think it's quite helpful to have yeah. the sounds of nature in different forms and different shapes. It's very soothing and very profound about your own human experience. And uh, that's not present in classical recordings no, unless no. it's modern classical. And they're not using modern classical, you know. And it's powerful. I mean, I know personally I've sat in ceremony in a maloca in Peru, you know, in the middle of the rainforest. And that's what you hear. <laughs> you hear cicadas, you hear birds, you hear, like you know, massive. animals you've never, yep. And yeah. it it was massively integrated into my experience. Like every time the cicada would chirp, I had this huge, you know, internal shift happen. Uh, and great, so it's another great point. Sorry. Yeah. And you're just like, you're on my thing. Yeah. This is the music thing. Yeah. The cicadas and the crickets, all those sounds, it's millions of sounds and it creates a sort of white noise. Hmm. Like, and that is another way of like train and training the brain. And this is something that has been used by indigenous ceremonies, sort of partly just because that's where they lived. But they, they, they talked about several cultures as crickets and frogs as portal openers. And I think it's sort of like when you meditate hmm. to that sort of sound, you know what happens. It starts to sort of like take you into this trance state very quickly because of that white noise. Again, absent from these other experiences and quite helpful to calm you. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, this is maybe a bit of a stretch, but like what, what comes to mind for me is I wonder if there's almost some like core, you know, like Neanderthal DNA level experience that like those sounds are comforting because actually, if there Familiar. were a predator around, well, like if there weren't safety, those animals wouldn't be chirping, right? I mean, this is, it's a total tangent and just a total like out oddball hypothesis. Sure. I mean, epigenetically, you could say it's it's built into our DNA of what, yeah, what is, what shows us what where trauma might be coming from. Go even yeah. further. It's like the trauma reverberating backwards through time and <laughs> yeah, telling you to <laughs> it gets out ter- there. McKenna shit there, but yeah. Uh, well, going back to the experience itself, um, what are you what are you finding um, are the pitfalls? Because I know it, you're saying it's fairly safe; it works pretty well. Um, what are, where are the what are its weaknesses? I've heard some people say like mm-hmm. it works for them for a while, like they need to repeat yeah. the experience. I've heard people say the experience itself is actually really hard for them. You know, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. they want they want the benefits, but they're actually struggling with the experience. Uh, what have you found? Yeah, what I've I mean, what you mentioned right away is that you know ketamine has this fascinating just physiological effect where um, someone can come in basically suicidal or suicidal, take ketamine, and for the next twenty four hours they're going to feel good. Um, they're the suicide is going to go away, the depression is going to go away. The major drawback, and and this is most of the research here has been done on infusions, uh, so the IV method. Um, they what they've seen is there's anywhere from like a one day to a two week window where um, they get that symptom relief, but then they go back to baseline. So that's a major pitfall because they do have to keep coming back to ketamine. Um, the caveat though is that that hasn't been studied with the combination of ketamine and therapy. 
Um, you know, so the, the theory here would be if we combine the two and you get that, I call it like a neural learning state. So ketamine can kind of show you a different way of being because once you come down from the peak experience for the rest of that day, the next day, you usually just feel spacious, calm, the anxiety has gone, the depression has gone. Um, so that's an opportunity to start to repattern how you behave and how you think and how you relate to your emotions but if you're not doing that intentionally, of course, you're going to go back to where you came from. So, so you're that's kinda, the you're integration You're kind of saying piece. the reprogramming of the brain is on one level very conscious mm-hmm. about creating new habits and patterns and new sort of thought patterns. And you're saying the other is unconscious. Like there's a, maybe a chemical a reaction happening with the ketamine in the same way that people think this is happening with psilocybin. Mm-hmm. With yeah. So, I mean – Ketamine itself, without any treatment, any therapy, is a treatment. You know, people are taking the nasal spray. They're taking it sort of as maintenance doses. And it operates on a whole different brain network than like classic SSRIs. Um, You know, it's hitting glutamate receptors and NMDA and AMPA and a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, But to me, that if you're not leveraging that chemical benefit, to also apply your conscious attention and start to form some new patterns, you're missing an opportunity. Um, sure. I, I guess I'm just trying to think yeah. about what 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 are the ways, you know, I, I'm interested because even in that, that, the ceremony concert you experienced, I'm playing around with how can we work with the unconscious and create some new programs, plant some seeds, sort of like hypnosis Mm -hmm. in a real way. Mm -hmm. That's the unconscious level through conscious action. And I'm trying to do it in a way that's approachable. Anybody could do it. It's not dogmatic. And in in that particular setting, we're not using or any medicine of any Mm -hmm. sorts. And Mm -hmm. not that I wouldn't, but we're not because we can't right now. Um, Right. So it's sort of like, well, what can we do and how can we make this a powerful experience? So I'm very interested in, myself learning what rituals how ritual plays a role in that how mm-hmm. we can we're sort of getting people into a trance state with the music and the, the little meditations and then it's sort of like you're sort of subtly guiding them into different ways they can make choices and plant seeds and so yeah afterwards they're going to think about that and maybe make some changes but then how is that working on the unconscious level in the same way that hypnosis yeah, yeah. does yeah and i mean it's it, yeah, I'm trying to think of where to go with that because it's well, what works for I, you in your setting in your sessions. Like, how do you? Yeah, guide what, people I mean, that a or, few of the I, I the way I describe it and I've heard it described is you know it's like 25 percent preparation, 25 percent the actual experience, and then 50 percent what you do with it or integration. And so, what I do is I do a series of four sessions uh, leading up to the ketamine sessions, and the whole point there is kind of threefold. Um, one is to just establish a relationship. Like counseling um, sessions. Counseling, yeah, just yeah. one hour therapy sessions. Um, and I I will say the relationship is one of the, the number one curative factors because uh, I've done ketamine alone and it's not the same thing as doing it in a room with another person who's mm. tending to your needs. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about that community aspect in ritual and ceremony. So even in your sound ceremonies, for me, when you did the, um, when you did the call and response and I was, you know, kind of in a pretty deep meditative state with the sound, uh, 
there was a moment where like my voice just blended with the voice of everyone else in the room. And I just, I just felt deeply connected on a level that, that wasn't conscious. It was totally in my body, uh, you know, and totally somewhere deeper. And so that it's not going to be the same as if I'm listening to that music alone at home. So there's, there's a participatory element, um, that I, you know, I think you've already alluded to of like, how do we, the improvisation, the, the meeting someone in that moment. Yeah. Um, there's the sense of safety. And so we do that. And then the, the biggest thing for me too, I'm a somatic psychotherapist. And so I, as much as possible, I'm trying to get people out of their heads and into their bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think if we could have solved our problems by thinking about them and talking about them, most of us would have done it years ago. Uh, and so for me, any, any healing ceremony has some kind of element or function that gets me back in my body. Hmm. Uh, and that's not like always that's, pleasant. Do you feel like you need to move to do that? Or what do you, or is it more about breathing and, and, and where you put your attention? <sighs> yes to both. <laughs> hmm. Um, I don't know how deep down this rabbit hole we want to go, but there's a, you know, there's this idea of sympathetic discharge. And so maybe you've experienced this without even knowing what it was or, or knew what it was, but um, somebody who's carrying stress or trauma or both who finally hits that state of feeling safe, what you'll see is their body will start to shake and move totally <laughs> autonomously. It's funny you're bringing this up. Yeah. And so it, um, you know, we see the same thing in animals, right? Like they, they get away from a lion and then they just start shaking. Uh, and that's a, that's a physical somatic release of stress from the nervous system. And so there's the movement that's required for me is like, if I can get that movement, but that's not something I can consciously, it's not like I'm willing myself to shake. I have to drop deep in enough where my prefrontal cortex and my sense of self are kind of in the back seat, and my nervous system is in the foreground. Are you familiar and, with uh, tremoring? It detect. I mean, you probably wouldn't be. It's a very esoteric technique for actors uh, hmm. as a form of of warming up their diaphragms and stuff. So you you lie on your back, and you might prop up your lower back. You know, so you can get your legs up in the air. It's kind of a yoga mm-hmm. pose. And if you try to straighten your legs, it can be in, you know your legs might start to shake, and if you you can get different positions where they're stressed essentially mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. creates a tremoring and the technique is about allowing that. And you're like, just yes. get into that. Yes. Tre- and you start to, and it starts to create obviously an intense uh, breathing thing, but also an emotional response. Yep. And we did this. Nice. I went to graduate school for acting. It was a long time ago. And we did this all the time because our, mm-hmm. our voice teacher was really into this. And I always thought it was quite odd, but Oh, people would get, oh, you know, it sounds, it's all about releasing the voice, but it also has emotional release. And it's really, and so that's sort of an an intentional way you can get into allowing the body to tremor, to shake. Mm -hmm. And the thing you brought up about the animals was exactly what I was thinking in my head. I am exactly the same thing I wanted to bring up because animals do have that. We're an animal. Right. right, so it's when they when they have that stress response. Dogs do it all the time, right? They mm-hmm. uh, like I, my dog was just barking yep. upstairs. I bet after she realized it was safe, they shake, they right. shake it off. They're like, yep. all right, I'm yeah. letting that go. I had I broke my arm twice, really badly, on a bicycle kind of thing where I was mm. riding, and the next moment I'd fallen in this horrific, 
uh, you know, 90 degree bend thing. And you're just lying on the pavement. I can't move. Mm -hmm. It's so painful. And then, you know, the paramedics come and they cut your clothes off and they kind of, you know, every, every inch of movement is so painful. They they get you on a stretcher, you get in the ambulance, you go to the hospital, you're lying in a bed, they wheel you into surgery, they put you out, you wake up and you're like this and you've never really moved. And now a week has passed and then you go home and you slowly start to move. And then let alone shaking, (laughs) not that that was an option necessarily in the pain, but I went into a depression uh, mm. after that, like month, two months later, it just kept going down. I'm, I'm sure it had a lot to do with a lot of things, yeah. the, medic- the pain pills, the this and the that. And I remember I was at my bottom and a friend of mine, uh, coincidentally, synchronistically reached out to me, this is many years ago, to, uh, he was having a really, really hard time and he was taking Adderall on mm. a daily basis and he had been for, I don't know, forever, prescription. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm kicking the Adderall and I'm, 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 I want to kill myself. I'm so down. And I said, mm. let's do a ceremony, psilocybin ceremony. Nice. I want to sit with nice. you. It came over and I was like, I'll do it too. And so it's just the two of us. And we, we ceremonially took it and we're just kind of sitting together. And I remember being an experience and I was feeling sad. I think I was crying and I felt, I mm. felt like a tremor in my legs kind of like your legs jittery. And I, I knew mm-hmm. about this with the animals. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm just going to let that go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into that nice. tremor. And I just sat there and shook for like yep. 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I had, of course, the psilocybin helped me have the realization of like what I've been holding in my body and the trauma mm-hmm. that was in my mm-hmm. body, mm-hmm. not just my mind, but my body. And after that experience, I noticed I just was on a trajectory out of a hole I got out of that depression and I, I look back and I saw that as a very key moment of release of some kind of somatic release and something with my, the, the trauma of the body. And so what I wanted to ask you about is trauma yeah, and, and how you find that, like I, I, trauma is insidious because it's, there's so many different kinds of trauma. Like we could have trauma just from how we grow up and maybe mm-hmm. things are, they might appear fine, but it was traumatic, the experience of not quite being heard or the experience of mm-hmm. just the way your parents lived their life perhaps wasn't what you felt in your heart could be. And that was traumatic, let alone abuse, accidents, all these mm-hmm. you know, more um, acute traumas. So in your experience, all these different myriad traumas we hold in our body and from our past, what have been the most powerful ways and the safest ways that we can access these uh, particularly with ritual, the psychedelic experience, and or any form that you might yeah. find that yeah. actually, because all the things we're working with, like you said, we can't think our way through it. Right. Ritual or all these things we're talking about are say, well, how do we how do we speak the language of our body of our unconscious? Right. Let's is, so let's get to how you release it by way of like the mechanism of what's actually happening. So if we kind of like break down the story you just told, um, and starting with like, what is trauma? So for me, um, trauma occurs on the level of the nervous system. And so it's not a cognitive process. It's, it's literally that mammalian animal response to a situation where your response to threat doesn't work. That's the, the core definition of a traumatic experience, right? Like saying no, your response to the threat in the moment doesn't isn't effective you're saying it's it's, yes and so like saying no doesn't work running away doesn't work fighting back doesn't work there's literally nothing else you can do so imagine being eaten alive by a lion 
um, is just the easiest situation to describe. That would be traumatic. Um, Or as a little kid, you know, like not not feeling safe in your home and not having any way to escape that, right? Mm -hmm. And so trauma is different for kids and adults because there's a different threshold where we, once we hit the overwhelm point, as long as we can do something about the situation, um, it's stress, it's not trauma. And we're pretty good in that sense in that like stress can be released. But as soon as we tip the scale over into I'm screwed, I I'm helpless. I'm stuck. That's when our nervous system, there's a whole different cascade of responses that happens that kicks into the freeze response, which is a dissociative response. That's where you get the out of body, um, you know, and that, that actually makes sense. That's functional. If you're being eaten by a lie, alive by a lion, you don't want to be there. Um, and in the same case, like what I'm hearing you describing with your broken arm is, you know, you, you had this overwhelming experience on the level of your body where your body was hurt and injured and you couldn't help yourself and and your body didn't know what was happening. And then instead of getting that out of the body right away, like we actually, as humans, we tend to shut down the shaking, voicing, sounding release response because it's embarrassing or not culturally appropriate. Um, or, you know, you're taken to a hospital and shot up with a bunch of anesthetics and painkillers. Um, and then, you know, what happens? You're stuck in a dissociative state, which is depression. Uh, you know, depression's not the same thing as sadness. Depression means you don't feel. And so if you're dissociated from life, from experience, you're not engaged, you're numb, you know, everything is just kind of gray. And it's that really just awful feeling of like, oh, I can't think right. I can't move right. Uh, so, the way to release trauma is actually to get back into that dissociative state, um, which is interesting that ketamine does that for us. So ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. So it takes us right back to, I'm not in my body. Uh, but then with that sense of safety in place, we get the shakes, we get the release. And it, as you said, like when you took the psilocybin, um, you know, suddenly there was enough safety, there was enough perspective, you were far enough away from the actual event that your body was ready to let go. And as soon as you let go on a physical level, your life changed uh, and the depression lifted and and you came, it's almost like digging yourself out of a dissociative hole and back into experience. Uh, The catch is that like, at least in the short term, it gets worse before it gets better. Because uh, all the stuff you didn't want to feel in the moment, the pain, the anger, the frustration, um, you know, the reaction against the trauma, you got to feel that first. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where I think the medicines like psilocybin and ketamine help because they they just let our bodies feel that and and we don't shut it down in the same conscious way. Is that making sense? Yes. So let's talk about this dissociative state that you're referring to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to be that with MDMA assisted therapy with PTSD trauma, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be what's happening is they essentially they get activated by the chemical, which allows them with a therapist to talk about the traumatic event and not be as emotionally activated by it. And somehow by bringing that into the open of their mind, into the world, whatever, talking about it, there's a, there's a profoundly healing aspect on a unconscious level. 
Mm-hmm. It, yeah, this so, is my interpretation of what, totally. how this works because I know yeah. how the mechanics of it work in the session. So I, I would, when you say dissociative, I'd assume it means a sense of separation. Um, well, in, in your the way you describe it, between your mind and your nervous system, between you know between yeah, the, mind, body. wherever that is stored, that trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question would be, could we have that dissociation? in ways like through um, meditation, um, trance state, which is like hypnosis or the way that music can push mm-hmm. us into that trance state. And then in that state, can we work with trauma in the same way? Yeah. And there's, I mean, that's what's cool about this is like during your sound ceremony um, where I was essentially sober, I'd microdose some THC. And so just you should have a little taken, bit. You should have scheduled one of your lozenges to be needed to be taken then that day. Right. That would have been awesome. That would have been deep. Uh, but, but, you know, what I want to point out is that like, I could have been totally sober and I, I more or less was, and I still got those shakes just from the deep sense of safety and relationship and connection and the sound getting me, um, out of the thought loops and into my body. And so I didn't, I didn't plan on coming to your ceremony and having trauma shakes. And, you know, if you had seen me, I was just sitting on the floor, just kind of twitching and doing all these weird things. And I felt awesome after the ceremony. Um, so for there's, you, for you, it's like, you're allowing that to happen. Yeah. And so, you know, like you described with the legs up, there's a lot of techniques. Um, the one I use in therapy is, and I do this with or without ketamine or any other medicine, uh, you can do it totally sober. I put clients in a, a process called containment. And so if, you know, in our daily lives, we have all these ways we escape difficult feelings. You know, we take deep breaths, we twitch, we move our hands, uh, you know, even like swallowing or doing stuff with our tongue. So I start to cue into all those little micro movements and cut them out one by one and just say, hey, stop moving your hands. Uh, And hey, if you need to take a deep breath, just go ahead and verbalize that, but don't do it. Uh, And what happens eventually is they'll start to feel something activated in their body where they're like, oh, I really want to, I want to get away from this. I want to take a deep breath. And I'm like, just stay with it. Just stay with that feeling. And if Mm. they stay with it long enough and don't blow it off, the nervous system will take care of it. And I've seen people, you know, have full on defensive responses where their arms are moving on their own or they're collapsing and crunching in, um, you know, or they might sit perfectly still and just have these little tiny tremors inside. But it's, you know, there's many doorways and it's all the same room. So how, if you're, how much if you're body doing awareness dance, or emotional intelligence does that require on someone's part? I mean, that's where having a skilled therapist who, who understands somatic therapy is useful. Because uh, even me, the thing is, you can't really hold yourself in dissociation. Uh, what, the, what about with self-hypnosis? Maybe. I mean, it's it's hard to say because the nature of the dissociative state is that you're you're checked out and you're gone. So but having a, so a recording is sort of like an other. You're saying it's t- like guiding you through it. Versus yes. just doing it totally on your own. I mean, I'm not ruling it out, but if you think of, um, there's a, this idea of co-regulation. I think it was, um, I can't remember the name of the psychologist who came up with that, but where our nervous systems, you think about mirror neurons and they actually talk to each other. 
um, in a language that has nothing to do with words. But if, if we were sitting in the same room right now, I could feel your presence in a way where like, yeah, mostly I'm orienting to towards, are you calm? Are you safe? Are you grounded? Uh, or is there a threat here? And that, so having somewhat, if you're in a dissociative state, revisiting some trauma from the past, having someone else in the room who's taking those deep breaths for you mm-hmm. and staying calm, I think creates more space for the release. Um, and that, you know, it just, no matter the exception, I'm trying to think about my own experience here. Um, I, and I don't even know how to say this, but the, there's something that like psilocybin or other psychedelics will do that I can, I've gone into the woods by myself and just laid down in my tent and shook for an hour Mm. uh, while I was on psilocybin. Um, cause it just lets me go there. Are you familiar with the Shakers and the Quakers? You know, the, the religion, the Quakers? A little bit, but not, not in depth. I, 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 there was a Sounds True podcast, a guy who's all about this. And he was talking about how the Quakers originated as the Shakers and their whole religion was about shaking hmm. and yeah. releasing. And you should check it out. It sounds nuts. And you know, the not first really. time, I mean, it's yeah. like you say, it's about release and through that release, you're getting out of your mind and getting in touch with right. intuition, which is whatever you want to call it, divinity, the source, you know, yeah, higher power yeah. and probably well, just, for them speaking in tongues and like, right. You know, it's the, it's that real blessing of like feeling safe and calm in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And every medicine experience I've ever had in some way, shape or form has pointed me back to the present moment. Uh, and the essence of trauma, as far as I can tell is to remove us from the present moment. And so however we get back there, whether you shake, whatever you do, um, you, you eventually, I eventually realized that I was okay. Uh, you know, and that all the stuff living in my body had happened in the past or were worries about the future. And that like, I was just fundamentally okay right here, right now. Uh, and that, I think that's the essence of it. You know, like that's what we're aiming for. And that's how you heal trauma is like you come back to this moment in a way that's fully engaged and fully alive. Hmm. Do you find any work with grief is sort of the same thing? Like not embodying the grief in our body, uh, that, that grief being not expressed perhaps creates trauma? Yeah. I mean, it. maybe it's over-reductionistic of me, but I, I kind of just view everything through the lens of trauma. Um, you know, and what's more overwhelming and, and makes us feel more helpless than losing someone to death? and, and not accepting that experience. And so the healing that's possible through grief is like coming to a place of acceptance where you feel less helpless and you feel, you know, okay again, being here and, and still being with that loss, but in a way where you have capacity for it. So I, I think everything is, is a, a flavor of trauma. Um, if it's, you know, if it's causing us to feel disconnected, where you were talking about it being based in feeling overwhelmed mm-hmm. and you could easily argue that just modern life in general is one large sense of being overwhelmed, whether it's by information or people 
mm-hmm. or experiences or I mean everything everything is more and than it ever has been ever. Yeah. And and that's you know the other I have kind of like my day job and my my night job is the ketamine stuff but I teach mindfulness in schools. Um and the question I keep getting from teachers is like Hey, this mindfulness stuff is great, but my kids are totally frayed right now because they keep watching the news and they feel like somebody's <laughs> going to bust into their classroom and shoot them at any moment. Like they feel completely overwhelmed, even though in the moment they're safe. Uh, and so there is this weird, it's a weird time we're living in where if you're not like consciously choosing ritual and ceremony and ways to like remind yourself to be present and be okay you're it's way too easy to feel overwhelmed uh and stressed and just you know burned out yeah man that's what i want to be doing personally is like offering people experiences and tools um that are enjoyable but also are they're just that they're a tool to help you navigate modernity and navigate the life that we are that we're that we're in and and, you know we need more pathways that aren't about pushing something away you know it's Mm -hmm. about it's about integration because you can't get away there's no more going to a cave and tuning out it's like you can't i don't it's almost impossible now to opt out Uh, and i really mean that with a lot of seriousness it's not like Mm -hmm. yes you can not have a smartphone and but it's like you're kind of you're kind of going to be in the matrix and and there's probably a reason for that on a soul level but regardless here we are so now what and what's being told us for what to do is there's been a lot of uh fixes or ways to like you could you know it's the yoga thing and there's organic foods and there's different forms of therapy and and the traditional forms of just taking a vacation as opposed to, you know, that's a form of getting away, pushing something away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, I don't know. We're also in an age where everything is quantified, whether it's a Fitbit or your Facebook likes. And mm-hmm. it's a very strange way of looking at the unquantifiable. And trauma well, is not something that yeah. has a, a, <laughs> a and zero as you to said, there's score. like there's this race going on for your attention. You said that during your ceremony and I've, you know, I've seen that too. I've seen the Ted talks of like how, um, you know, social media and, and targeted at, it's not benign, you know, like there, it's it's a very sophisticated means of, of hijacking your attention as much as possible. And so it's like, you're right. You really can't opt out. Um, you know, but the other piece of what I hear you saying is like y- using these these ways to return to something real. Um, you know, like maybe that's the opting in, and it's it's not immediately an easy path. Is the thing that I think you know can sometimes get lost when we talk about psychedelics. It's like, oh, take this MDMA or this ketamine and yeah. you'll feel better. Yeah. It's like, well, you'll feel better after you go through your own personal hell and confront in a, in a safe way, though. Like, that's the difference. Um, yeah, you'll you, do the healing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, but you, and it's you have a to step feel. in an endless path. It's, there's no panacea. Like, and then you arrive and you're done. Um, we continue on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't look at and psychedelic experiences, they're not for everybody. And no, that's okay. They certainly it's, but are. It's, 
it is a tool we have on this planet that we've been uh, pushing aside in a certain way that it's, it's returning in a medicalized setting that I think is important, particularly because of everything going on now, particularly because of our disconnection. Yeah. And the, the connection just got fuzzy, but um, here, I'll just kill my, I video. think it'll come back in there a second here. Make the bandwidth. Better. So I don't want to talk over you in case you're talking. You can um, kill your video and we can just use audio to make our bandwidth a little better. Okay. There you go. Cool. Yeah. So um, what's the uh, legality of this from state to state? Is it a schedule one? And if, if someone wants to do this kind of work, do they just choose to do it? Or is it different in every state? Do you have to have some sort of referral or what's what's the process? You're talking about ketamine? Yeah. Ketamine is a schedule three. I think I've got that right. Um, I know you have to have a prescription for it. Uh, mm -hmm. But as far as I know, it's legal in every state as long as it's prescribed. Mm -hmm. And um, the way that, you know, the prescriber I'm working with, he's only prescribing it for use in therapeutic settings. Uh, so it's not like, hey, I can go get this prescription and just have a bunch of ketamine. Uh, it's like, no, I'm working with a therapist and I'm going to take this in session. Uh, and that's how it's being used. Um, you know, the other option that's out there that and we, you know, we've gone pretty in depth today about ceremony and ritual. And so the, the option that includes none of that is just going to an infusion center. Oh. Um, and, and you can just go sit in a chair and put eye shades on and get shot up with ketamine in most states. Um, but what's the process? Like, I mean, does insurance work with this? Do they have to go to a, a psychotherapist who says, okay, the other stuff isn't working for you or can they just choose to do it? They can just choose to do it for the most part. Um, those infusion centers are, are kind of wraparound. So they have psychiatrists who work there who will do an evaluation and, and decide, are you a good fit or not? Um, unfortunately, right now, this isn't covered by insurance and it, it tends to be expensive. You know, most infusions are 400 bucks a pop. Um, and, you know, paying for a therapist is, is not cheap either. So you know, in terms of, of getting this done effectively right now, I, I even, I do recommend to some people who come to me and they're like, I just can't make it through one more day. Um, you know, those are the people who I say, why don't you go check out the infusion center? Uh, cause it does help. It provides some breathing room. Um, but then I like to work with them once they're sort of back, back to, to reality a little bit more, you know, and they're, they're a little bit more stable because, you know, the way I work with clients isn't easy. We, we intentionally go digging through the trauma. So you have to have some right. ability to do that. How um, often do they have to do treatments typically? And is there like a, a length of it or, you know, how regular is it? It's yeah. I mean, honestly, it's being done in all different ways. Um, and that even though there has been a good deal of research on ketamine, um, I still think it's not fully understood. You know, that like, yeah. I don't even think they really know how it's working or why. What the research does seem to indicate is that a series of four to six sessions in a short period of time, like a couple weeks to a month, uh, tends to be more effective than just like a one-off session or something like that. Though That's pretty I, often then. That's like one or two a week for a month, right? Yeah. And the way, you know, the way I've been designing this with my clients is we do, um, 
sort of a, I've, I've actually based it on the medicine wheel. And so I do mine, you know, starting in the east and then moving to the south, the west, the north. And it's a series of four sessions. Mm. Uh, and I intentionally, with all my clients, I say, you know, after those four sessions, we're going to put a pause on the ketamine sessions and, you know, we can revisit them in a month if it feels necessary, but I want you to take time to integrate what you've learned and, and work with that in your life, you know, apply some of this mindfulness, apply some of the, the new freedom you might have and, and make some new choices. Um, so that's how I do it, but you know, everyone's doing it differently. And, and there certainly are, there's even people who have the, um, in some states, you can get an intranasal spray at home, and that's almost like an every day, every other day sort of thing. It's a much lower dose. Uh, is it, is it even like not activated much, where you notice you know, From what I've heard, I haven't tried it. It's like, you know, you want to sit down for about 45 minutes, but you're not going to be having a, a psychedelic experience. What about people who do you need to have? Uh, an, an issue that's pathologized or what about people who consider themselves yeah, those to be are well a lot of my clients for wellness um, and i think that that's a huge opportunity you know if we if we kind of back that up one step to to the context of like the whole crazy world we were just talking about um that does feel so overwhelming like i i right. personally think even if you're well um it's an act of service to continue to work on yourself so you can show up more fully in the world. And so a lot of my clients are people who just want to explore, you know, their spirituality or their, their past traumas or anything that's holding them back from being their best self. So I guess that's legal because it's schedule three and working with you gives it a medical benefit. Do you have to, but since it's not through insurance, you don't have to do any coding to say, oh, this is the reason why I'm working with mm-hmm. them. Or totally. Anything. I mean, that's just your yep. right yeah. as a and licensed therapist to do that. And that's one of the big reasons do I don't work with insurance. Um, and that, so, you know, anyone can come to me and you don't have to have a diagnosis and I, I prefer not to give you one. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, it's a, it's just a way of, um, accessing a part of yourself that you can't normally access. And, you know, one way I've yeah. described ketamine or, or the way I felt it in my experience, it's like getting a 30 to 40 minute break from myself, uh, you know, and my habitual thoughts and, and all the things that, <laughs> you know, I'm. I'm usually doing to beat myself up or stress myself out that all just, yeah. <laughs> a break from yourself. Yeah. I love that. I, I could totally use a break can. from myself. Uh, and it helps, <laughs> you know, it, it gives a sense of perspective. That's great. Well, last uh, question I have for you is, you know, what is your own personal edge with this or, you know, the podcast itself is called 10 Laws and the 10 Laws are sort of a buddy of mine who's come up with sort of his ground zero things to follow, but uh, not so literally. You know, what are the things you find that you're working up against or maybe with this particular work or in your own psyche uh, and something that's perhaps helping you walk your own walk, whether it's 
doing the, the shaking you're talking about or, mm-hmm. or maybe your own work with ketamine or, uh, or something else entirely or something you're just not able to crack? Yeah, it's, um, that's a great question. And I, I think the, the short answer, and then I'll give a little bit longer explanation is I'm, I'm in a continual process of getting back to my heart. Uh, cause I know in the moments where I've been in my heart, that's the most full expression of life I've ever experienced. Uh, and as a result, I know what it's like when I'm not in my heart, which is the majority of the time. Um, you know, I dip in and out and I get, I get little tastes of what it's like to be there. Um, but to be more specific, my, my biggest edge right now, I'm, you know, it's, it might sound a bit, uh, brash to say this, but I, I think it's the truth of where I'm trying to go with my work is I'm, I'm trying to work on my attachment patterns mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm trying to work on how I show up in my relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my intimate relationship with my girlfriend is, is sort of the primary vehicle for that. Uh, but my friendships, you know, how I show up with other men, my parents, my family, um, because as a result of all the medicine work and meditation and ceremonies I've done in my life, I'm hyper aware right now that uh, I have tendencies to shut down or distance or pull back. Um, and I have a lot of boundaries up that don't let people in and, and keep me feeling separate. And um, I, I know that's an attachment pattern because it's something you know, if I could change that, I would, but it's just so hardwired into, you know, something I learned at a really young age before I could even speak. And so I'm, I'm trying to use every modality I can to unwind those patterns and, and show up in a way where I don't get reactive or, um, you know, like I said, shutting down and distant and I'm, I'm available to love the people in my life. Have you ever seen that book? I believe it's called Attached. It made Mm -hmm. the rounds a few Mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And uh, Stan Tadkin's work is good on that too. He does uh, something called psychobiological approach to couples therapy. Mm. So sort of a body-based attachment process. Um, but that's, it's big work. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't, it's, it feels daunting, you know, in my current state of being to, to think of, you know, cause I have a lifetime of, of, patterning yeah that sure one way of being so i'm i'm working on un- unwinding that bit by bit yeah well i appreciate you sharing that yeah and absolutely. um i feel like there's more i we could get into maybe another time we'll talk again i want to talk about um some stuff about masculinity and yeah, uh, other things but, i'll say briefly um and we could talk about that another time i I got into men's work uh, within the last two years mm-hmm. and it's been as life-changing, if not more life-changing than the psychedelic work. Mm. Um, just being in men's groups, leading men's groups, like really rewiring how I relate to my own masculinity and femininity. And that's a whole nother conversation, but. Yeah. Well, I would like to talk about that because yeah. uh, I uh, joined a men's group back in, in my little town of Boulder, Utah recently. Awesome. We already started one, I should say. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about like what that is and, you know, just all about it. And um, I think it's an interesting 
subject, especially these days, there's a lot of talk about the Me Too stuff. And it's sort mm-hmm. of like discussing, I mean, I, I don't have a typical progressive viewpoint of it. I'm not political about it, but I'm just saying I have a more of a holistic, like looking at the whole picture of masculinity and what it is, what its role is and how we connect to ourselves and all this, this balance and so forth and so on. So yeah, that could be cool to get into. Yeah, it'd be huge. And there's, there's a lot of healing that needs to happen there. Um, yeah. You know, and I think, well, yeah, I mean, for men in particular, like men are, are I think, being called more than ever to do that work. Uh, and I, I try not to get political about it either, but I get, I get pretty fired up because I think um, there's a lot of lonely, isolated, shut off men. And as a result, there's a lot of violence in the world. Mm. So there's, you know, there's ways to change that. And, uh, I, I'm excited about it. Well, next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how do people find you or what's, what do you want to put out there into the world? I'll put your website in the show notes, of course. Yeah. Website is codywigs.com. Uh, you can contact me through the website. Uh, I don't have much of a social media presence right now, but, um, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me if you're curious. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for giving me and us your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. So I'd love to do it again. We shall have a, have a good one. All right. See ya. Thank you, Cody, for giving us your time and all that awesome information. I learned a ton and he's just a really sweet guy. I look forward to talking to him again and and uh, maybe trying that therapy sometime. Okay, 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 okay. So this song you're hearing in the background is is called Nowhere to Run To, and it's from my old podcast, which you cannot find anymore because I took it down many years ago. But it hit 64 episodes, and it was just little improvisations that I called Sound Healing Bites, and this is one of them. So for me, it's super old work, and it sounds like little demos, but some of them are kind of sweet, and this might be an interesting venue to sort of give them a new life. So this is Nowhere to Run To. And uh, again, don't forget to review this podcast. It makes a big difference just for my own morale, but it also helps other people take a chance and listen to it. So find your little way to scroll down on the, the show page there on iTunes. Give it five stars and give it a few sentences. Give it a comment. It makes a big difference. And I, I like to read those and I like to read some on air. You can always reach out at info at eastforest.org just to say, hey, questions, whatever, or PayPal money. Why not, right? Why not? Help me out. Uh, we always appreciate gifts, but this is not a barter system, folks. There's nothing expected other than congeniality and good counsel and partnership. But you can reach out to that same info at eastforest.org if you'd like to get some info about the listening parties and have us send you that content. Content, Because we're doing a global listening gathering on January 25th. So I can't wait to see you then. In the meantime, y'all keep walking your walk. May the forest be with you. Don't take any shit. But if you do, do it at like 40, at least 40, 40% plus of grace.
There's no way around. 